you would join me in Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to be finishing verse 15, looking into verse 16. We've been studying the book of Ephesians since the first of the year, and I trust the Lord is using it for good in your life as he is mine. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. I want to read this, these two verses just in a little bit larger setting, so if you'll go back with me to verse 11. What we're reading down through verse 16 really is a guideline of sorts for the operation of the church, Christ's goal for the church, his goal in saving you, to be conformed to his image. We're given here the means by which this conformity to the nature and the image of Christ is accomplished in us. And so in verse 11, Paul tells us that he himself, Christ himself, gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men and cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love, may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. So again, what we've read is the means and the goal for the edifying or the building up of the body in love. We're told here in this fourth chapter that Christ is doing this for us as he works individually in each of us. And then as each of us individually work with what he has supplied, we are doing it for and with one another. And so our emphasis here this morning is on the second half of verse 15 and the entirety of verse 16, which brings us down to a new paragraph, which Lord willing we'll look at next week. So let's stop here and pray and ask for the Lord's blessing on his word. Our Father, we understand and know because you have told us that every word that you have given us is pure. Every word is inspired of you, so we pray you would take it and bless it to our understanding. And we ask you to do so in Christ's name. Amen. The years 2004 through 2008 were pivotal years for our family. They were pivotal years for me. I was a young pastor, had been a pastor for three years already. My understanding of Christ's church, my place in his church, was under great reform. I had been raised in church spent the majority of my life, especially as a young child and through my teenage years, being in the church building of our local church 
usually three times a week. We would go Sunday morning, we would go Sunday evening, and then we would go on Wednesday night. That was my perspective as a child, and then when the Lord called me to preach in the setting of that church, then the only thing that I knew to do was to perpetuate what I had known and grown up in. So the first church that I pastored, people that I still, our family dearly loves, and I think they love us still as well. We go back very occasionally and have good relationships with these people. I began to pastor this church, which was very much like the church that I had grown up in. It was a Southern Baptist church, very much wanting to minister to the community around us, wanting to minister to ourselves, wanting to be edified. It wasn't long after I came to be pastor of this church that the Lord really began to reform my thinking about the church in general, about my place in the church, about my family's place in the church. And if anyone from that era of my life gets a hold of this sermon, I want to just put a, a little caveat here. That was a great time period in my life. That was a great period of growth in my life. There were things that I rejected, but that rejection was not of people. That rejection was not because of something so much that was lacking but it was an embracing of something more. And the things that I'm going to say this morning, I want to place them in that context, and I trust that that's the way that you'll hear them. You might consider some of the things that I say this morning to be hard, but just remember, I'm calling for us not necessarily to reject what's lacking, but to embrace what's more. And I think that would be true in our lives individually. It would be true in our life corporately as a church. What we read here in Ephesians chapter 4 down to verse 17, we read of Christ's expectation of his church. We read of steady progressive growth. We're going to talk about this word in verse 15 about growing up into Christ, into the head who is Christ. There is a steady, progressive, albeit slow work of the Spirit in our lives that causes us to grow more and more to be individually conformed to Christ and more corporately conformed to the image or picture that the Spirit of God has painted for us of His church in the Scriptures. I remember during those years of 2004 and 2008, I can remember those with specificity because, first of all, 2004 is when we, at the end of 2004, we left this first church that I pastored in Decatur, Texas, and we made our way back close to home. You know, many of you know where Novice is, the church that's out there on the four-way stop. We came to that church, and the Lord continued to reform my thinking and challenge me on certain things as regarding the church. And there was several pastors that I would listen to during this time in my life, one of them primarily being Vody Balkum. I know many of you are familiar with Vody's uh, ministry. There was a sermon, I can't tell you what the name of the sermon was, but I was listening to it on my drive somewhere and 
something he said so resonated with me, I had to pull off the side of the road. I can still remember and just really regain my composure over some of the things that he said regarding the current state of the church in so many places. And coupled along with that, I'm reading in conjunction with my study for Ephesians a, a compiling of sermons of Martin Lloyd-Jones on Ephesians, and it's, it's kind of hard to keep up with him because, keep up with the reading because he'll preach a number of sermons on two words, and if you want to stay with him, you've got to really read a lot. One of the things that he said in one of his sermons this week as I was reading them he said, the church in, in our day, and remember he's writing this in the 1950s, 1960s. He says, the church in our day is so involved with wanting to promote itself through campaigns and revivals when in reality, the church in its current condition in so many places really has nothing to commend itself to the world. It's in no shape to be commending its current state of being to the world around it. What needs to happen before the church goes on a number of campaigns and evangelistic rallies and revivals is for within the church, the church itself, to be right, to order itself biblically, to have its doctrine settled and real. And then, from that foundation, then the church has real cause and real calling to go out into the world and call people to Christ and call people to be a part of the body of Christ. And then I read something else this week by John Stott. One sentence. He says, the more we share Paul's perspective of the church, as given here in Ephesians chapter 4 and in Scripture as a whole, the more we share Paul's perspective, the deeper will be our discontent with the ecclesiastical status quo. I think he's right. The more we understand the high calling of the church of Jesus Christ, and then we find ourselves immersed into something less than that, those who have the Spirit of God in them and are yearning and longing after the things of Christ and to see Christ formed into them and to be conformed to the image of Christ, there is a bit of what I'll call holy discontent. We should yearn to see the things on the pages of Scripture be a reality in our life individually and corporately. So I begin to question, what, what might John Stott mean when he says, or when he speaks of the ecclesiastical status quo? And again, he's writing a little later than Lloyd-Jones, but in the 60s, 70s, and the 80s. And so I begin to contemplate, and I'm going to ask that you extend me some grace here as I talk about what he may mean when he writes of the ecclesiastical status quo. And then we're going to go back to this verse 15 and 16, and see the expectation, not just of Paul. It's enough to say that. He commends himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ, and therefore he commands and demands our attention and obedience. But it's even more than that. What Paul wrote, we affirm and we must, is that he wrote under the inspiration of the Scripture. So this is not just Paul's perspective. This is the Spirit of God's expectation of what the church of Jesus Christ will 
be, what it will look like. We've been given a a definitive position of who we are in Christ in the first three chapters. And now Paul is seeking to, by the Spirit, apply these things. And what might John Stott mean by being discontent with church life and the status quo nature of it? I think what he may mean, my interpretation of it anyway, he means a place where there is little expectation of me or of you as an attendee. Someone who attends the services. There's not much required, not much expected. Just be in the service and all with you will be well and all with the church because of your presence will be well. But yet we read in Ephesians chapter 4 that every joint is supplying something. Note that word. Every joint is giving something. Every joint is being useful for the edifying of the body of itself in love. So there is the first part of this, what we can call holy discontent, when we see what the church is called to be and what in many places the church is, is where there is little expectation. In some places, some would say the expectation of my attendance is too high much less the expectation of not only my attendance, but then my active ministry once I, make, once I gain entrance into the building of the church. And so you see how low the bar has been set. There are a good number of professing Christians who will push back on the expectation of the Scriptures of being present in the meetings of the assembled church. And so if we're pushing back on that most basic premise then how hardly will we push back on the greater expectation of actual and real, self-giving, humble, forbearing ministry in the body. And secondly, what can be meant by the status quo and the discontent? Perhaps it is very often seen, the church I'm speaking of here, as a place that is to meet my felt needs. It's a place that I go to have my needs met and the needs of my family and all of the, quote, ministries of the church should be structured accordingly. What this does very often is leave the real needs of exhortation, admonition, edification, calls to repentance. It leaves all of these undone. My felt needs and your felt needs are rarely, if ever, our real needs. Our real needs are to be confronted by the truth of the Word of God. Have the Spirit of God take that Word as it is living and active and divide our very thoughts, the intents of our heart, to have them judged and measured by the, by the living Word of God and the living Christ of that Word. The third thing that I thought of, very often the church has devolved into nothing more than a place where pragmatism rules over doctrinal faithfulness. Let me see if I can explain a little better what I mean. Pragmatism basically says this, if it works, it must be right. And we have 
in so many places, this has taken over what I would call faithfulness to doctrine or doctrinal precision, whichever way that you want to phrase it. Pragmatism cannot rule over doctrine in church life or in your life as an individual Christian before a holy God. What seems to work is not always right. What we think in our minds sometimes will never work is exactly what we're called to do. We're called to be faithful to the Scriptures and to be about those means of grace that the Lord has given us, have His blessing resting upon them, things like the preaching of the Word, the singing of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, prayer, the ordinances of the Lord's Supper and baptism, corporate fellowship, all of these things have the favor of God resting upon them. And they are means for our edification and our growth. Another thing, very often the church has denigrated into a place with surface friendships instead of deep abiding fellowship. The church was never intended to be a place of surface friendship. You can find another club for that. You can find another venue or or some other way to express that surface type of relationship. The church was meant to be, in Scripture, a place of deep abiding fellowship where we minister one to another as the Spirit has enabled us And so really we cut the legs out from under what we are called to be in the church of Jesus Christ when we allow no one entrance into our lives through an outer shell that we put on. No one wants to be vulnerable, myself included. No one wants to allow another brother or sister really to know what's going on in the depth of my soul and how I might really and truly be helped. What I really and truly need to hear Far too often we see the church as an appendage to the Christian life rather than the vital organ that it is, the very heart of the Christian life. And I won't shy away from saying, because I think the entirety of the Scripture would back this statement up, you cannot be all that you were called to be as a Christian without the church of Jesus Christ. Now the problem with that statement is again, our interaction with church or churches have been not what we see so often in Ephesians chapter 4. And so some people reject that outright and altogether and say, yes, I absolutely can, and I can be a better Christian outside of the life of the church than inside it. That just points to the sad state of many local churches, and it denies the truth of the the Scripture. And my encouragement to you and myself is to increasingly see the church as defined by Scripture, not defined by your or my experience in it. I realize that's a default setting and one that's hard to get away from, but 
the body of Christ, that for which he died, that he, which, of which he said he would build, that he would supply for. Notice this paragraph that we're immersed into, verses 11 through 16, is all about the corporate church with underlying individual members. Christ has a goal for his larger church, and then certainly for me and you as individual members. And so what we see here is that we cannot separate Christ from his church. Reason being, he is called here and other places as the head of the church. If you have the head, you must have the body and vice versa. You cannot stand aloof from the church, the true church of Jesus Christ, and be in a right place, in a right standing with Christ. Can we be so bold as to affirm that statement? We cannot be in a right standing with Christ. We cannot live the, quote, abundant life of Christ outside of the habitual give and take that is to be found in the church of Jesus Christ. So let's go to the end of verse 15 and see the Spirit's perspective or the Spirit's goal, if you will, for what we as the church are to be and what we are to do with and for the gifts that have been given us in ministering one to another. We dealt with the first phrase of verse 15 last week, speaking the truth in love. And just by way of quick review, this has so much more to do with just than just verbal communication. The word speaking here is because of the larger context, not because of the original wording. The deceit and the cunning craftiness of men that's in the preceding verse is being propagated through speech. So the counteracting agent is the speaking of the truth. It's an adherence to the truth of every aspect of our lives, making the truth of God known and doing so in a context or an environment of love. Truth without love is harsh. Love without truth is sappy. So we take both together and we put them together, and this is what the Lord uses. But we're interested this morning in the second half of verse 15 the product of speaking the truth in love. That we may grow up in all things into Him who is the head, Christ. I want you to look at the words here, grow up. This word speaks of the measured, observable growth of a plant or of a child. Perhaps when you were a child, you had somewhere in your home this place where you mark your height on the wall, something like that. And you could, as a child, measure your growth. It's observable one year to the next. Those of you who are, are gardeners, this, this word speaks to the growth of a plant, the observation with physical eye of the growth. And here we are called to grow up in all things. Notice the comprehensive nature of this growth. We're not to just grow in one aspect or the other. Lest things grow out of proportion. Lest we begin to give 
certain emphasis to one thing at the expense of another, the scripture calls us to grow up in all things into him who is the head. We are to have what Lloyd-Jones calls no oddities or eccentricities. Nothing that is out of balance. Not giving emphasis to one thing and failing to give emphasis to another. For example, if our emphasis is only, please hear me, if our emphasis is only to reach the lost and it's not balanced for the, with the edification of the body, then we're out of balance. We need to have a real hunger and desire to reach those who are outside of Christ, but we should have a corresponding desire that matches the building up of the body. You should be as concerned for your brother or sister sitting next to you or in front of you or behind you in their spiritual growth as you are for that lost person that you have contact and communication with. To be, to be a balanced Christian, we are concerned for both. We understand the one, if they were to die outside of Christ, are dying in their sins and will suffer the eternal condemnation. And so we give ourselves in obedience to the Great Commission to make the gospel known to them, but not at the expense of every member ministry one to another. So this is a progressive, measurable growth in all things. We are growing up into Christ. And let me just stop and ask the question of all of us. Are you growing up in all things into Him who is the head, Jesus Christ? Is there marked, measurable growth in your life individually and then in the corporate life of the church? Is there marked and measurable growth, steady progress being made? This is the expectation. What are we doing to short-circuit or to hinder it if there is no measurable, progressive, yet steady and slow growth? Activity only does not ensure growth. Activity very often can stunt growth. You take a, a young man, a boy who wants to grow in strength and you start him too soon with weights too heavy, what's going to happen is his growth is not going to be furthered, it's going to be stunted, even though he is extremely busy and he is extremely disciplined. The exact opposite is going to happen. So we cannot confuse busyness and activity for that which produces growth. Sometimes it's the very opposite. But notice the standard or the measure of what we are or who we are to grow up into. Into Him who is the head, Christ. What this means is what Paul would write in other places in Colossians and what he's already said in this book of Ephesians is that the Lord Jesus Christ is to be preeminent in the church. He is supreme. He is to the body of Christ what a head is to a physical body. 
your physical body does not move unless it is unless that movement is instigated by your head your brain the same is to be carried over into the church into church life why else would paul use this metaphor of the body the physical body for the body of christ over and over again in all his letters the church of christ is not to move or to give itself to anything that is not instigated by Christ. And here we aren't subject to to dreams or visions or whims. We are subjected to the expectation of Christ given to us in Scripture. The body of Christ is to be directed by its head, the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, Martin Lloyd-Jones says, Christ is the life of the church, and if there is no vital relationship to Him, there will be no life. The church will be dead. If we are not connected to the head who is Christ, and we cannot say we're connected to the head who is Christ if we are not about and concerned with the things of Christ. If His desires are no longer our desires... I like this definition of what revival is. Revival is being firmly bound to the head, Christ, receiving from Him His activity and placing ourselves happily at His disposal. Do you want revival in your life? Do you want to be given new vibrancy and health, spiritually speaking, in the Christian life? You'll only find it as you are connected to the head, Jesus Christ, and find yourself immersed into a group of people who are seeking the same thing, who are wanting the same thing. And to go back to this idea of holy discontent, for all the areas where we say we are discontent with the church, and I know for many of us that that list is almost innumerable, right? For all the areas that we may be discontent with all of the churches supposed or even real lacking, there is only one thing that should produce this holy discontent in us, and that is when the church in our experience does not match the church that we read of in Scripture. Then we are brought to a crossroad and we have to answer the question, what will we do? What will we do? There should be no limit on what we would do to try to remedy the situation. To make our real church experience match what we see on the pages of Scripture. There should be nothing that we would not give up. Nothing that we would not go after. No price that is deemed too high. Whatever the cost may be, we, we go through that and we try as best we can to find ourselves on the pages of Ephesians chapter 4. Sometimes this is accomplished through giving things up. Sometimes it is accomplished by going after new things, and that takes me back to, to my caveat there at the beginning It's not so much a rejection of things lacking as an embracing of something more. I see more 
on the pages of Scripture concerning Christ's church. And I want to go after it. I want to experience it to the full. If Christ said He's going to build it, then I want to be a part of Christ building His church. I want to be useful. You want to be useful in the building up where every part does its share. Where there is great expectation placed upon each individual member, not just presence only, but real ministry, real giving of yourselves to one another. The church as we find it in Scripture is so far drastically different than the world in which we live. We mistakenly fool ourselves to think that we'll receive from the world what only the church is equipped to give. We're to grow up into Him. He is the head of the church. We receive our marching orders, as it were, from Him. Now look at verse 16. Speaking of the head, Christ. Now, admittedly, verse 16 is wordy. It can be hard to follow. So we just have to proceed through it slowly and prayerfully, asking that the Lord help us divide the word rightly. From whom the whole body... So in other words, what we're reading here in verse 16, from the head, Christ, the whole body, is receiving. The whole body is being built. Two words here to pay close attention to are the words joined and knit. The first, I think we should see as Christ, when He says He is building His church, and when we compare this to what Paul would write to the Corinthians about how Christ builds His church, then Christ is taking individual members which He has gifted with certain abilities and He is piecing those members together as He wills based upon what the church lacks. If you're a member of this church, Christ has gifted you to this church because you have something given you by Him that this corporate body needs. You may not feel that way, but then we can't always base our life on our feelings, can we? So this is the first word, joined. At Christ's good pleasure, He is taking different parts of the body and He is putting them together as He will, building His church as He will. Therefore, if we understand this truly and rightly, then we cannot be discontent with the way Christ builds His church. If we lack, we lack at His bidding. If there is a certain glaring in our mind's absence, then that absence is there due to Christ's sovereignty as head over His church. When the time is right, He'll add what we need. And then we will, Lord willing, receive, recognize, and give thanks to Him for adding what was lacking. That's the first word. He is joining us together. Just like pieces of a puzzle. The second word goes beyond that. And it, it's represented here by the word knit. 
And this is not just the bringing together, not just the joining, but the holding together. When something is knit together, it is sewn together, sometimes with a very thin, almost imperceptible thread, but nonetheless, it is being knit together. This is what Christ does with his individual members. He brings them together, assembles them together, and then with cords of love, kindness, and all of these other things that we have read about, he begins to knit together where we hold together. The first word, joined, has to do with the right parts being brought together by Christ. The second word means that these right parts have been given right hearts. Right desires toward one another. The whole body is being joined and knit together. And then there's a shift. The emphasis is removed from Christ's activity, His overt activity, in providing these things, and the emphasis shifts back from the head back to the body. Because what is true here is it's that not only is Christ supplying, but once He supplies, those parts of the body, now that bear His gifts, begin to use and minister them amongst one another for His own glory. Christ gives to you so that you can give to someone else. That's true in every area of your life, whether it's financially. If Christ is pouring out His abundant blessing upon you financially, it's so that you will have to give something to someone who is in need. So that you will have a stewardship to give back to Him so it can be used in the furtherance of the kingdom of Christ. Not only is it true financially, if He has gifted you spiritually, then He has gifted you to use and to share. And here's the unique thing. Paul says even those lesser parts of the body are essential. And I suppose every one of us from time to time feel like we are those lesser parts. Really no meaning in us being around. So we think... But Paul says to the Corinthians that those lesser, quote, lesser members are the real essential members. Perhaps you and I represent what instigates others to effectively begin to use the gifts that Christ has given. For everyone who encourages, there is someone who needs to be encouraged, right? For everyone who edifies, there is someone who stands in need of being edified. For everyone who has been given by Christ the measure of, of strength in, in spiritual things, there is someone who stands in need of your sharing with them that strength, reminding them of certain things that are applicable to their faith. Notice the end of verse, or the middle of verse 16. From whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, 
according to the effective working. Now, this is an interesting word, translation here, effective working. You go back to the seventh verse of chapter 3, we find it there. Paul, speaking of himself, he says, of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God, given to me by the effective working of his power. Every instance of this word in Scripture refers to the acting of supernatural power, either of the Spirit of God himself or what we'll get to in time in chapter 6, the demonic host, Satan himself. So when we find it in this context, what we find and what we see is a a unique combination when we as individuals saved, justified in the sight of God, given the Spirit of God, and an accompanying gift, if you will, back up in verse 7, then as we come together, we effectively work amongst one another. And the word again, a supernatural operating power. The Spirit of Christ collectively in His body, working supernaturally to encourage, to edify, to equip, to call to repentance, whatever it may be, the body effectively works. So we have no excuse, no reason to say that I or you or so-and-so is not needed. Every part does its share. What's the end product? Causes growth of the body for, for the edification of itself or the edifying of itself in love. Now we're just looking at words in verse 16. These are not my words. These are not your words. These are the words of Scripture. Every part does its share. Every part does its share. Every part pulls its own weight. Every part recognizes its importance. Every part being obedient to the head. Every part having received something from the head. And the result then is growth of the body. Not numerical growth. That's a byproduct. The growth here spoken of is real, substantial, even measurable spiritual stability. Remember, Paul says, no longer be children tossed to and fro. Let me tell you why the Scriptures say you need the church. Spiritual stability. No longer tossed to and fro. There is protection in the church of Jesus Christ that we all provide one another. Protection from wolves in sheep's clothing. Profession, protection from Satan himself who is active like a lion prowling about seeking whom he may devour. There is protection in the church of Jesus Christ 
that you will not find anywhere else. But that protection is found in a scripturally ordered church. A scripturally gifted church where Christ is head not only in word but in actual deed. So by way of application, if I can end in this way, are you doing your share? Are you performing your ministry in the church? Are you causing, are you a part, are you a part of the cause for growth of the body? Or would something else be true of you? Well, in thinking along those lines and dealing with your own conscience, trusting the Lord to deal with us as He will, we have to say our desire, if we're thinking rightly, our desire is to be a part of the cause of growth. And if we're not, what do we do? There's only one answer. We repent. We recognize that things are not what they should be, that our view of the church has been too small, it's been too little. We've allowed more of our experiences with the church to define for us what the church is than the Scriptures. And we submit ourselves to the head once more. And then we begin to actively pursue in love ministry one to another. Let me, let me go back and, and just share briefly the attributes that are brought out in the fourth chapter Chapter 4 pictures a truth-speaking community, those who are speaking the truth in love, who are marked by humility, meekness, patience or long-suffering, forbearance, and love. This is the goal. This is our hope. And we have a great Savior who now is not only Savior, but head of His church. That's why we say all praise and glory be to Him. If you or I have anything to give to one another, it's because He has given us something. And having given us something, we have really no right to withhold it from one another. God help us to not, God help us to not be disobedient, but obedient to Him and strive to be exactly what He's called us to be under the praise and glory of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for Your mercy given to us. Lord, we're thankful to have been called into the body of Jesus Christ. 
far too often we think less of the church than we should. Lord, would you fix that in us? Fix it in our hearts, in our minds, the way we live out our participation. Lord, show us the beauty. Show us the beauty of that for which Christ died. Show us the beauty of that of which Christ said he would build. Show us the beauty of that for which he said he would return, his bride. We ask you to do so so that you may be praised and glorified, and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.